This is Our American Stories, and today is Veterans Day. We tell stories about our men and women in uniform all the time. But today we're spending the whole two hours talking about the people who served our nation and the highest calling in our armed forces. Let's start with someone distinctively qualified to share some stories about our veterans, Lieutenant Colonel Sean Scully, who served 22 years in the United States Army, starting as an airborne infantryman, and is currently an academy professor of history at the United States Military Academy at West Point. He's in charge of the American History Program at the Academy and joins us now. Thanks for joining us, Colonel Scully. Oh, thank you, Lee. I'm uh, excited to be here this morning. And uh, I, just as a side note, I grew up in northern New Jersey, and my dad would take the whole family to West Point once a year and just walk us around, and it wasn't on a day off. It was to have us meet the cadets, walk around, and see what a good life can look like. And it, it shaped me and helped me in many ways, uh, Colonel. And so uh, thanks for joining us and for doing what you do at one of our nation's finest institutions. And by the way, Colonel, our military is still ha- held in very high esteem when so many of our nation's institutions are held in low esteem, from Congress to the media and, and even business. Um, so kudos to you. Let's talk about all of the folks who've served in uniform over the years as we hit uh, this day, Veterans Day. And I'm talking about from our earliest war, sir, straight to today. All right, Lee. Well, first off, thank you very much for that very nice introduction. I appreciate it, and I'm glad that uh, that you got to spend some time when you were younger here at West Point. It's absolutely beautiful, and uh, and I'm very fortunate to be able to serve here. Um, so to start with, I think what we can talk about is uh, at the very beginning of our history in the American Revolution, um, at that point in time, we had a population of about 2.5 million people, um, and out of those, about 200,000 men served in some capacity during that war. Uh, now, very few of those were actually in the Continental Army. Back then, service, military service, was um, considered, um, it was much more favorable, perhaps, for most men to serve in their local militias or in their state regiments for short periods of time, rather than to enlist for three years of the duration of the war in the Continental Army. So the, the regular service was, was actually much less, and some numbers estimate that only about 20,000 men ever served at a given time in the Continental Army out of those numbers. And then from there, talk about the uh, other major uh, battles and give us a context there about the, the men, men who put on uniform, particularly in armed conflict. But obviously it's important to be wearing the uniform when we're not in armed conflict because we never know when we're going to be in the next one. Well, that's that's right, but um, but over the you know from the 18th to the 19th century, um, actually the U.S. Army, uh, particularly, um, would grow and shrink based on those conflicts. So that you know, in 1783, when the American Revolution ends, uh, the the militaries of the states and of the nation actually goes down to a very small portion. Um, and, in fact, there's only one regiment of about 1,000 to 2,000 men left in a federal army by, by the 1790s. Um, and then as we got into other conflicts in the War of 1812, the Mexican-American War in, uh, in, 18, in the 1840s, then we would, we would drastically increase the number of soldiers in uniform um, 
through both a process of volunteerism and conscription to make the make the military forces much larger so they could fight those wars and then we'd shrink them down again and then things that held true right through to world war ii even i was stunned i just gone through the national world war ii museum i was stunned at where we ranked as a world power in terms of the scale and size of our army and the number of warships and planes uh, we weren't in the top 10 lieutenant oh, no. scully no, no, not at all. In fact, um, you know, there was, a, there was a spirit of isolationism in the 1930s that was pretty prevalent. And though uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, as president, was no isolationist, he was much more interested in trying to keep us involved in international relations. He knew that the sentiment wasn't there. And so the military forces were incredibly small uh, in 1940. Um, but, then, but then obviously we grew... Through uh, through both volunteerism and and the draft, up to more than 12 million men and women serving in uniform in World War II, and and of those, 40 percent of those were volunteers. That's a remarkable number. And 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 the good news is, I think that at least many people I talk to in the military like the idea of a voluntary army. And our army today, our military is volunteer. And talk about whether this makes armies better or worse, in your opinion, or do you have an opinion, or maybe you're not allowed to have an opinion on that matter, and I understand well, that, too. I, I, think it's, I think it's okay to, to talk about the pros and the cons, certainly. Um, and, you know, the, you're right. In 1973, the U.S. military went to an all-volunteer force. Um, and what that has done is, is a couple of things. The first thing it's done is it has made the military a much more professional organization, um, and so you see that the soldiers that are enlisting, like I did back in January of 1995, very motivated, um, not forced into service. Uh, they're, they're choosing to serve their country um, for a variety of reasons, but all of those lead to very motivated uh, soldiers, sailors, marine, uh, Marines, and, and airmen. And, and then the officers and non-commissioned officers of this force uh, have been in for, for many years, uh, and are professionalized through a professional education system that makes them very competent uh, at their profession. Um, now, the, the flip side of it is is that uh, you do see that there seems to be less political involvement uh, by, by the majority of people in terms of our decisions to go to war, uh, perhaps because uh, you know, those of us who are going to go to war have volunteered to do that, as opposed to perhaps being forced to do that um, through a draft, which through the vast majority of American history has been the case. You bet. And when we come back, our special two-hour edition of Our American Story, celebrating Veterans Day, we're talking to Colonel Sean Scully, who teaches history at the United States Military Academy at West Point. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories. And for two hours tonight, Veterans Day is what we'll be celebrating. And we're talking right now to Colonel Sean Scully, who teaches at West Point. And we've been talking a bit about wars, and we just covered World War II for a second. Uh, Colonel, Vietnam, Iraq, the first Gulf War, Iraq, Afghanistan. Talk about the number of folks who have served in those conflicts. Give us a context uh, and then ultimately talk a bit about the number of folks and men and uh, men and women in uniform today serving our country. Absolutely. Um, well, you know, by the time that uh, that we as a country built up our military involvement in Vietnam in the mid 1960s, um, we had become much more involved in international relations. We were involved in a Cold War with the Soviet Union at the time, and so during that era, it's estimated that about 9.2 million. Uh, men and women had served between 1964 and 1972 in uniform, but that 2.7 million of those had actually served in Vietnam because the majority of, of people, of men and women serving in the military, were actually serving all around the world. They were serving in Germany. Uh, they were serving in Korea. They were, they were all over at different places. Um, and so, you know, if uh, out of 180 million people in the United States, um, that's that's actually quite a large jump in military service during that period. But as we all know, the the draft was a major part of of kind of the politicization of that war during Vietnam, yep. and particularly because many of the men being drafted were the ones being sent to Vietnam. So out of those 2.7 million, um, there was a majority of those were actually drafted or conscripted, and that led to a lot of protests. And it led to this change that we talked about earlier, where in 1973, President Nixon decided to create the all-volunteer force and make service uh, in the military volunteer. What were the downsides to that, Colonel? We, we talked about the upsides, but what do you think of the downsides to that? So, so I, think, I think the downsides to that decision um, could be that uh, it disconnects our decision to to go to war, to use the military, um, from uh, a political or you know a political involvement by citizens who can choose to either participate or not participate because uh, military service is is voluntary. You know, but the flip side is again, and, and going back to this, and I've been a member of an all volunteer force my entire career. Um, we are we are very good at what we do. Um, we're professionals at what we do, and and our our service to the American people, I think, is that much uh, more effective because of that. And do you think, though, one of the problems might be that fewer and fewer people even know anybody who serves in the military anymore, and so then there becomes a disconnect culturally between the culture at large and those who serve. Talk about that. I, I think so, you know, and we we worry about that within within the the military uh, because we don't want to be disconnected from the American people. That's who we work for, um, and so we're very concerned with that. Now, of course, we answer to civilian um, to our civilian uh, overseers, if you will, our masters, uh, the the Congress and the President of the United States, and and uh, they're elected by the people. But our relationship with the American people is very important to us. Currently, I was looking at some numbers, and, and um, it, it appears that about 22 million uh, military veterans are still alive within the U.S. population today. Um, and so that means that it's about 7% 
of the U.S. population has served in some capacity at some time. Now, that's still a good number, and it, and it still um, runs with, uh, with other averages at other times in American history. But, you know, with only 1.4 million in active service today, that's a very small percentage. And, yeah. and so I think sometimes we, we look at those numbers in two different ways, and people can use those statistics how they wish. So true, but we know one thing is the World War II generation starts to die off, and then the Vietnam generation, we're going to be looking at a very, very small percentage of our aggregate population that has ever served or worn the uniform for their country. I think you're absolutely right. That is true. And I don't know that that can ever hearken or beckon to be a good thing for the country, but that's another conversation. You teach a particular period of, uh, of, the, of, of war at the, and, and war history and American history at, uh, at West Point. Talk about some of the sacrifices soldiers made in the American Revolution. Uh, it's pretty remarkable, some of these stories. Oh, it is. I, you know, I, I do. I like to tell these stories to uh, to my cadets that I teach, um, and just because it, I think it puts our own um, service to the country in perspective. One of the one of the things that I that I always like to talk about is when it, what happens at the end of the war. Um, we we've got we've got so many stories in our in our national consciousness about Valley Forge, um, about um, the battles at New York or at Boston or at uh, Trenton, and rightly so. But I think we often forget what happened when the Army was disbanded uh, in 1783. It happened right here where I'm at today, at West Point, New York. Um, and at that point, uh, Congress was pretty much broke. They didn't have uh, much money. They were relying on the states to support the soldiers that were serving. And when they discharged these soldiers, many of them actually had to beg from civilians for enough money to get them down to New York City. And the reason that they were traveling down to New York City, which was 50 miles south of here, was so that they could get jobs as dock workers loading British military warships for the British who were, who were evacuating New York to go back to England because they were the only ones who had any money. And that was the only way they could get back home. These guys ended up not getting paid for their service. That's Colonel. exactly right. You know, by the way, we just did an hour on Yorktown, and what struck me most about that wasn't the battle itself, though that was fascinating. It was this moment when one of the, one of the historians was talking about George Washington coming home to Mount Vernon on his way to Yorktown he stopped in at Mount Vernon for the first time in five or six years. What a sacrifice. Oh, it was amazing. Well, actually, uh, George Washington in particular, he understood that he was, he was the symbol of the Army for, for many. Um, he never took a day off in eight years. He, he did not take leave. He didn't go on furlough. Um, he, he basically stayed with his army the entire time. Martha Washington would come up and visit him, right. but he did not leave the army itself. Um, and, and it's absolutely amazing the sacrifices that were made during that time. Now, you've personally worn an army uniform for over 20 years. Tell us a little bit about the men and women you served with. Well, that's, uh, <laughs> there are so many men and women that, uh, that have influenced my life uh, over the last 20 years, um, and and the support of the American people that has done so. You know, I, I enlisted in the Army um, in 1995. Uh, I spent five years as an enlisted soldier, and, and as a sergeant, I went to the officer candidate school to become um, a second lieutenant. And, uh, and throughout all those times, 
Um, I just served with some amazing men and women who were uh, non-commissioned officers, who were my company commanders, my battalion commanders, brigade commanders. Um, and uh, in particular, there's this one, there's this one sergeant that I would, I would want to highlight. His name is Teddy Coleman. And uh, Staff Sergeant Coleman uh, and I served together after he had already been to Iraq and Afghanistan multiple times. Um, and Sergeant Coleman uh, was medically retired from the Army uh, while I was serving with him because he had received three Purple Hearts. Um, he had been hit by IEDs multiple times. Um, and in the course of his service had lost all of his hearing in one ear and most of his hearing in another. Um, and what was so astounding about him outside of all of that was that he still wanted to serve. He, he did not want to leave the Army. He wanted to keep serving his country. Um, and so we, we worked on that for a little bit, but the fact was, was that um, in terms of his medical record, that just wasn't possible. And he's now gone on to do other great and wonderful things, um, but it's men and women like that that you think about when you're serving in uniform and you realize that there, there are others out there who have given way more than, than, you know, than I have in the service of their country. And, and it's days like today that you want to think about those people. And that's the kind of person you want in any kind of foxhole. And frankly, if you're a business owner, um, I think these are the kind of people you want to hire. Um, because, my goodness, uh, be still my heart. I've worked around so many great and fine folks from the U.S. military. What I'd love to do at another time, Colonel Scully, is, and if, if it's a day that's tied to history and West Point, like the day West Point started, I would love to spend an hour with you talking about West Point because I think it's a separate conversation, but an important one. It's one of our great military institutions. But thanks for joining us today on Veterans Day to talk about, well, of all things, veterans. <laughs> Lee, thank you very much for having me, and I'd love to come back some other time. You bet. This is Lee Habib again, and this is Our American Stories. It's Veterans Day. And for two hours, that's what we're going to talk about. More after these messages. American stories celebrating Veterans Day for anyone who ever has served since our earliest wars straight up to the present and in between. We're going to dig into some letters. And if you want to get one book for Father's Day, for anyone who's interested in war letters, nobody's done a better job of this than Andrew Carroll. The book is called War Letters, and you can't put it down covers all the wars from Revolutionary War straight up through the mid-90s when it came out. It does not cover, obviously, our, our most recent incursions into battle and war, Afghanistan and Iraq. The right through Desert Storm, all the letters are covered, all the periods, and they're remarkable. He's dedicated, by the way, Andrew, much of his life to collecting and preserving Americans' wartime correspondence. Indeed, he collected so many of them, 75,000, 
that he had to have a separate apartment just to house them. That's some dedication. He later donated them to the Gilder Lehrman Institute of American History for safekeeping. Here he is telling stories and reading some of these letters from his book, War Letters. During World War II, uh, four chaplains on a uh, troop ship, uh, which was torpedoed, found themselves comforting all the men and and, uh, helping and sort of calming uh, the sailors and the soldiers on board. And they came to a horrifying realization. There were not enough life preservers left for everybody. And so these four chaplains took off their life preservers and gave them to the first four young soldiers they found, saving their lives and essentially dooming themselves. And the last image anyone had of these four men was them locked arm in arm, praying as the ship went down. They were never seen again. And it turns out that the last remaining widow... Um, obviously, the Catholic uh, priest was not married, but the rabbi was, and uh, as were the two Protestant chaplains. And the last remaining widow lives in Washington, D.C., not far from where I live. And she very generously gave me some of her husband's letters, including the last letter he wrote to her, which is, I'll just read very quickly, Darling, just a hurried line as I rush my packing. I'll be on my way in an hour or two. I got back yesterday afternoon just before the warning. Hard as it was for us to say goodbye in New York, at least we could see each other before I left. Don't worry. I'll be coming back much sooner than you think. Remember, I love you very much. Alex. And by the way, letter after letter, again, war letters by Andrew Carroll. And we've dug up some letters as well. Next, this one from Fletcher Isaacs, the grandson of World War II veteran Leonard Isaacs, who was killed in action in Iwo Jima in 1945. Here's Fletcher reading the letter Leonard sent to his two boys, including Fletcher's father, before he shipped out to serve in the Pacific and would never ship back to his boys. December 17, 1944. My dear little boys, I'm writing to you today just a week before Christmas Eve in the hope that you will get this little note at Christmas time. All of this coming week will be holidays, and I can just imagine the fun you'll be having, especially when you know that it's just a few days before Santa Claus will be coming. If it were possible, I would like to come down the chimney myself and crawl right into your stocking. Wouldn't that be a surprise? I would enjoy it even more than you, but since your dad is far away and Santa Claus has the only reindeers that will fly through the air, I'm afraid we will have to let Santa Claus use them. After all, he has so many places to go in such a short time. I won't be able to give you a Christmas present personally this year, but I do want you to know that I think of you all the time and feel very proud of the way you've been helping your mother while I'm gone. I know that it is only natural for young, healthy, and strong boys like you are to want to play and have fun all the time, but I do want you to think about helping Mummy, because it's hard for her to do everything while I'm gone. I know that you would like to give me a Christmas present too, so I'll tell you what you can do. And this will be your Christmas present to me. Every day, ask Mummy if there's any errands that you can do for her. And when there are errands, to run. Say, sure, Mummy, and give her a big smile. Then during the day, go and pick up your room and look around. If there are toys scattered all around, or if you've left some of your clothes on the floor, pick them up. Also, when Mummy is busy trying to clean up the house, don't leave her by herself. 
but ask Mummy if you can help take care of Baby's sister. If you do those things for me, well, that will be the finest Christmas present that you could give me. Oh, yes, and Cece, are you eating your meals like a real man now? Well, my boys, I guess you often wonder why people fight and have wars, and why lots of daddies have to be away at Christmas time fighting, when it would be so much nicer just to be at home. That's a hard question to answer. But you see, some countries like Japan and Germany have people living in them, just like some people you and I know. Those people want to tell everybody what they can do and what they can't do. No one likes to be told how to live their life. I know that you wouldn't like it if one of the boys in the neighborhood tried to tell you what church you should go to, what school you should go to, and particularly if that boy was always be trying to beat up some smaller or weaker boy. You wouldn't like that, would you? And unfortunately, the only way to make a person like that stop these sorts of things, or a country like Japan or Germany, is to fight them and to beat them and teach them that being a bully, because, after all, that's what they are, is not the way to live, and that we won't put up with it. What does all this mean to you? Just simply this, my boys. Dad doesn't want you to ever be a bully. I want you to always fight against anyone who tries to be one. I want you to always help the smaller fellow, or the little boy, who may not be as strong as you. I want you to always share what you have with the other fellow, and above all, my boys, have courage. Have courage to do the things that you think are right. Never be afraid to fight for what you think is right. To do those things, you need a strong body and a brave heart. Never run away from someone you may be afraid of. If you do, you will always feel ashamed of yourself, and before long, you will find it so easy to run away from the things that you should stand up and fight against. If you and lots of other boys try to do the things that Dad has been talking to you about in this letter, it may be that people will not have to fight wars in the years to come, and then all the daddies in the world will be home for Christmas. And that is where they belong. Perhaps some of the things that I've been talking about you don't quite understand. If you don't, Mummy will explain them to you, as she knows. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. God bless you. Daddy. And here's one last war letter before we go to a break, and then we're going to play some war letters from American Experience that are just terrific. And this comes out of Andrew Carroll's tremendous book called War Letters. Again, this one written by James Carroll Jordan, and this is after having liberated or seen the liberation of one of the camps. We visited a German political internment camp today. The camp had been liberated only two days, and the conditions have changed very little. The American Red Cross has just arrived. The inmates consisted of mostly Jews, some Russians, Poles, and there were six American pilots that they shot almost immediately. When we first walked in, we saw all these creatures that were supposed to be men. They were dressed in black and white suits, heads shaved and starving to death. Malnutrition was everywhere. We met one of them that could speak English, so he acted as a guide for us. First, we saw a German monument that stated 51,600 died in this camp in three years. They were proud of it. Second, we went in the living barracks, six square feet per six people, hardwood slat six foot high. Then we went down through rows of barbed wire to a building where they purposely infected these people with disease. 
human guinea pigs for German medics. In this building were exhibits of human heads in jars and tattooed human flesh or skin on the walls. What a letter. It goes on and on. Utter horror. The things our men have done and women in uniform celebrated on this special day for all of our people who've ever served Veterans Day. More after these messages. This is Our American Story, celebrating Veterans Day, all two hours of the show today. We're looking at some letters, and this one is a Civil War letter from an ancestor of a friend of the show's, Maida Pearson Smith, a beautiful lady who lives up near Memphis and just epitomizes everything that's beautiful about the South. And this is a letter from Amelia Irvin Smith to Daniel Smith. And it was written on Monday, May 6th, 1861. And we had faith, our faith, do the reading. My dear husband, I've just heard from you through Tom Matthews, who has kindly offered to take this letter to you. He tells me that you have been or will be received into the company. I heard after you left that the company was full and all those who went up to Montgomery late were turned off and I was in hopes there would be enough without you and you would soon be at home again with us. But I know it is wrong to be selfish and I will try to submit to it cheerfully and do my duty towards the precious charge you have left behind. I have thought of you every moment since you left except when asleep. And my imagination has presented a thousand pictures of your situation, but I cannot tell whether any of them are true or not. And I sincerely hope that you will be more comfortable than I can imagine. The children are continually talking about Pa and asking when he will come home. Little Percy has been calling you several times, and Sally says that I must go after you and bring you back. She can't do without you. I always tell them that you will come as soon as you can, and I feel that you will. But do not think for one moment that I wish you to sacrifice your honor in the least, even for the happiness of being always with you. For I love it as much as you could, and I would not for my life be the means of casting the slightest blemish on your dear name. So when your thoughts turn homeward, think of me as being more reconciled and cheerful than when you left. Do take care of yourself for my sake. You can't imagine what a desolate, hopeless existence life would be to me without you. When you write, tell me all about your fare and how and where you sleep. I hope you are not exposed to the night air much, but I know that there is a being who can make all things powerless to harm you, and it is in him I place my trust. May he watch over you and bless you in every undertaking 
and bring you back to us again safely. The children will send much love and many little messages, which I have not room to write. The long, long days that have passed away before I see you again will have an end sometime. And depend on it, my dear husband, I will try and bear the bitter separation as cheerfully as possible. Do write as often and as much as you can, for every word that comes from you is precious to me. Your affectionate, Amelia. And a beautiful job, Faith. And what we're always struck by, any of us who love reading war letters of any kind, is the remarkable poetic nature of Americans as they write home. It's just startling. I'll hold that up to any writing anywhere. It's so beautiful. And out of those American experience letters we talked about, this one from World War II. November 23rd, 1943, Fort Benning, Georgia. Dear Louisa, for the nth time, thanks for your package. Please don't send me any more underwear, socks, or candy. The milk of magnesia was absolutely unnecessary. I'm having no more bowel trouble and don't anticipate any. This week, they're teaching us to kill. Now, you probably looked away and shuddered. I don't like the idea either, but we all know it's for our own good. The most strenuous work we do is bayonet drill. We lunge about and are required to growl, grimace, and look at each other with hate. They teach us how to withdraw our bayonets in a certain manner because steel sticks to warm human flesh. They even teach us how to scientifically stomp on a man. This will be invaluable in case anyone ever tries to pick on me. By the way, everything is done in double time. Puff, puff. Confidentially, I'm tired. So long, Mort. This letter from World War I. June 18th, 1918. Dearest Gurley, we were all subjected to several different kinds of gas today, with and without masks. As usual, I cannot rid my clothes of the odor. It sure is horrible stuff, honey. Deadly, and usually ensures a slow and horrible death. There's one kind which kills quickly, chlorine, but I do not prefer any kind or brand myself. I had to have a photo taken today for an officer's identification book, which every officer must carry. I believe they take the book when your body is found and send the photo to the War Department. There's no danger, though. You'll have me back soon. The war cannot last forever. Heaps of love for you, wifey dear. And this one from Vietnam. Dear Dad, well, here it is. We've been told that our whole company will be shipping to Vietnam. Our commander told us that there is no sense trying to fool ourselves. We are going for sure. The only thing that makes me mad is how do they expect you to tell your parents? They act as though it is an everyday experience, that we should feel that way. I don't mind going, but there are some guys here who just won't make it. Tell mom I wish I could have told her myself, but I just didn't know how. 
your son, Bob. P.S. Tell her not to worry. It's nothing I can't handle. Tell her not to worry. There's nothing I can't handle. A letter from home. This one from the Korean War. January 20th, 1952. Good afternoon. It's a bright, cold, beautiful day here in Iowa. How are you today, my sweet hubby? Jan is snoozing in her afternoon nap, and Jay plays cowboy all day long, and he hardly even takes a nap anymore. I think it is high time you were coming home, because Jan is beginning to call every man she sees in a magazine, Daddy. It will be wonderful to have you home again. You can come home at night to a nice comfy chair, and Jay will bring you your slippers and pipe, and I will bring you a nice tall glass of something cold and one of our new iced tea glasses. The shadows are growing long on the lawn. It's 4.30, and soon will be dark again, and your day just beginning. Take good, good care of yourself, sweetie. All our love to you always. Lou, Jay, and Jan. And we're doing these letters from home because this goes out to all the families of anyone who's ever served. This letter from home, from a father to a son in, in service and away, far away from home. Dear son, you have a fine little baby girl. She's five days old today and is doing well, and she will be waiting for you when you return. But your dear wife has passed to the other side today. Dear boy, it is sad news. But remember, God's will, not ours to be done. Now be brave, and remember the baby will want your care and attention when you come back again. May God give you strength to bear your burden, is my prayer for you. From your father. That had to be a tough one to get, folks. And we're going to close out with a letter almost everyone knows who's ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. And it's such a beautiful reading, and it's such a, well, it's such an amazing letter. Let's take a listen. I have a letter here written a long time ago to a Mrs. Bixby in Boston. So bear with me. Dear Madam, I've been shown in the files of the War Department a statement of the Adjutant General of Massachusetts that you are the mother of five sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any words of mine that would attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from tendering to you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the Republic they died to save. I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost. The solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Yours very sincerely and respectfully, Abraham Lincoln. 
This is Our American Stories for all those who have ever served, put themselves in harm's way. We thank you and honor you. Veterans Day, a great day, should be celebrated in all our schools. I don't think it's celebrated enough. Again, this is Our American Stories, honoring all of those who've served in our armed forces. No bastard ever won war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. This is our American stories, and that is George C. Scott playing George S. Patton. And those words, by the way, were written by none other than a young, a very young Francis Ford Coppola. He wrote the script for Patton. Imagine that. In his early 20s, he's writing a script like that that ends up winning an Academy Award and creating one of the great parts ever played by one of America's great actors, George C. Scott. General Patton, we're going to talk about him for the hour here on Veterans Day. And he was always a colorful, outspoken man. And his life was filled with controversy, rumors, and myths. Hitler's generals feared him. Eisenhower tried to control him. And the press, well, they had a field day with each headline he produced. Though much has been said about Patton through books and in movies, most of what is known of Patton has been centered around his World War II battles and campaigns. But what happened in his life before the Second World War? What made Patton tick? After all, one does not become a four-star general in the world's biggest war by accident. Moreover, one does not gain legendary status, nor is a person known simply by one name, unless they're extraordinary. What you're about to find out is that Patton's accomplishments were due to a lifetime of preparation. Think David in the David and Goliath story. Over the next hour, we will be taking a deep dive into the life of an American icon, the symbol of strength and success. General George S. Patton. The fighting Patton blood came to Virginia in 1770 with Robert Patton, a highly successful merchant and civic leader. He was described as a man who was a mule-headed, hot-tempered little man who was something of a dandy. Robert married the daughter of a courageous brigadier general, Hugh Mercer, a prosperous and legendary hero of the Revolutionary War. He had to be bayoneted seven times, clubbed and shot before he would die while riding to Washington's aid at Princeton. Robert's son John was a doctor, lawyer, and politician. He married and seeded the warrior strain. Of his eight surviving sons, six would serve in the Confederate Army during the Civil War. From Bull Run to Call Harbor, four would fall, two would die. The eldest of these heroes was the first George Patton. At the Virginia Military Institute, Known as VMI, he had been rated first in tactics, 
French, mathematics, Latin, geology, and chemistry, showing the range to excel that would dominate his grandson. George Patton died at 31 at the Battle of Winchester in 1864. His widow, Susan Patton, would sell everything except her husband's sword, saddle, gold watch, and Bible in order to head for the western frontiers. The courage of such a move into the unknown was pure Patton. Susan remarried in California. Her oldest son, George Patton, father-to-be of the future general, would grow up gripped with the heritage of his late father who died on the Civil War battlefield. This son longed to pick up his hero father's fallen banner. Here's George Patton's grandson, author of The Pattons, Robert H. Patton. George Patton II absorbed this memory of his father and wanted to fulfill what he see, saw to be his father's thwarted destiny as a soldier. Went to VMI, graduated first in his class. However, his family, his widowed mother, needed a breadwinner at home. So Papa resigned his commission and became a lawyer in California. But that left him saddened, that left him dissatisfied. And in a very benign, uh, loving, but nonetheless assertive way, Papa passed that thwarted dream that he'd had of a military career onto his young and ever-eager son, Georgie. So it skipped just one generation. George S. Patton Jr., or Georgie, as he will be called all his life, was born on this day in history in 1885 on an 18-acre ranch in San Gabriel, California. The Georgie's maternal grandfather, Benjamin Davis Wilson, had owned the land, and this grandfather also contributed ferocity to the Patton blood. He was a trapper, a grizzly bear fighter, a bandit killer, rancher, real estate entrepreneur, and he was also the first mayor of Los Angeles. The golden-haired Georgie began as a charming, loving, sweet-tempered, spoiled child. The man to be known for his fierce discipline knew little of it in his early life. Here's the renowned Patton biographer and the voice you'll be hearing most of from the hour, Carlo Desti. He, he had his way in, in virtually everything he did. Uh, he was given a horse. He was given a saddle. Uh, he was allowed to roam the vast Patton estate in, in Southern California. He grew up a, a happy-go-lucky, totally unlike the, the character that he later became. Patton was loved and doted on by everyone, but it was to his father that young Georgie gave his heart. Here again is Carlo. Uh, his father began to read to him at an early age, to tell him the stories and the myths of the Patton family, of, of the tradition of, uh, of the Revolutionary War when General Hugh Mercer died uh, at Princeton, right on through the Civil War where his own grandfather was killed at Winchester and his great uncle was mortally wounded uh, at Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg. He saw uh, himself as, as not only the embodiment of, of these, these great patents that had come before him, but, but as one who had this destiny that he had to fulfill. A destiny he had to fulfill. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about General Patton and his early life. So many of us know a lot about this man who led the charge to Germany, the speed and ferocity with which he led it. But who is that man? And by the way, Major Dick Winters, you remember him from Band of Brothers? Well, when you read Beyond the Band of Brothers, written by the head of West Point's historical 
college. Major Dick Winter's father fought in the revolution, great, 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 great grandfather fought in the Revolutionary War too. And it stayed in the blood. And for so many of our warriors, it's a family affair, a deep family affair. This is our American story celebrating the life of Patton here on Veterans Day. Our American stories for the hour, the life of General George S. Patton, born on this day in history in 1885. And Georgie, young Georgie, was flashingly bright at play. But when it came to academics, he was a disaster. The problem was his maddening but then unknown affliction, dyslexia. In general, dyslexia is a reading disorder with symptoms that include difficulties in spelling words, reading quickly, writing words, sounding out words in the head, pronouncing words when reading aloud, and understanding what one reads. Patton was a dyslexic. The problem was that George S. Patton never knew that he was a dyslexic. He went through his entire life, uh, in many instances, believing that he was slow. Uh, When he was young, he believed he was stupid. Uh, Dyslexia was a driving force in this man's life. And dyslexia, one of the, one of the byproducts, uh, and, and the one that's least addressed, uh, is not you know, inverting letters or having trouble concentrating or all the other manifestations uh, that we now know uh, go into what we call dyslexia. But uh, the, the unknown thing of, of low self-esteem, and, and there are many examples, particularly in his early life, of, of, of low self-esteem, which, which in a way acted to fuel Patton's desire to succeed. He felt he wasn't good enough on many occasions. They have a saying with dyslexics that that most of them are are smart but feel dumb. Interesting. The very thing that would have inhibited most propelled him. And bravely, Georgie, bravely, Georgie plunged into the Pasadena School for Boys where he had to develop a photographic mind in order to make even acceptable progress. And yet, He shined in ancient and modern history. He patterned himself after the great heroes. And for a patent, that meant great military heroes. One minute, he he was this young, carefree, rather happy-go-lucky teenager. And and virtually the next minute, as he prepared himself to enter West Point and to follow a military career, uh, he decided that that he had to be this other character. And... Eventually, you could not separate the, the character that he was portraying from the real Patton himself. With no openings at West Point, Georgie followed the footsteps of his father and grandfather to the Virginia Military Institute. But Patton's father cashed in all of his political IOUs to all who could affect a West Point appointment for his son. The campaign would take him only so far. Here's Carlo Desti again. In the end, Patton had to get in on his own merit. He had to take the competitive exam, uh, and he did pass it. But nothing came easy for Patton. 
he had to work twice as hard as everyone else. Now he was a West Pointer, but flunked out his first year due to his dyslexia. He had to repeat that year again. His entire life seemed over. He had to do things better than anyone else. And, and his whole life was, was keyed around this, this attempt day in and day out to prove himself. And so for him, mediocrity was virtually a sin. It was here at West Point where his terrible, unstoppable resolve, which was to characterize the rest of his life, it now seized him and drove him mercilessly to excel. And not surprisingly, he made very few friends and was deemed arrogant and remote. It was at this time when he began a conscious process of killing the sweet-tempered, affectionate child he had been in order to produce the profane, bad-tempered adult that he felt his new life required. He let his naked ambition show and openly aspired to be the first general from his class. He never threw a single scrap of paper away. From the time he entered West Point, he he wrote in a notebook, uh, for a future biographer, this may be of interest to you. And then he sort of summarized his life. And here he is, a 19-year-old cadet, and he, he really hadn't done that much. But yet he was already seeing someone down the line, years hence, writing a biography of his life. Remarkable. Crazy, isn't it? And with his dyslexic difficulties at West Point, now caving in to the sheer weight of his will, Patton's marks and standing in his class improved. His overzealousness offended virtually everyone. He reported eagerly. I believe that I reported more men than any other officer of the day this summer. They don't like me. But when I get out in front of them, the foolishness stops. (laughs) Patton's graduation from West Point in 1909 came after five grueling years, finishing a respectable 46th out of a class of 143. This was achieved with sheer bulldog grit. It was a trait that would become all too familiar to his battlefield enemies. In less than a year after graduation, Patton was commissioned a second lieutenant in the 15th Cavalry Regiment, and he also married Beatrice Ayer. Not long after, in 1911, they had a daughter, also named Beatrice, or Little B. Patton found himself unready and displeased. Here again is Patton biographer Carlo Desti. He found fatherhood extremely difficult, and he found uh, the birth of his first daughter, Beatrice, a, a traumatic event. He had a difficult time adjusting. He felt lonely. He felt isolated. All of a sudden, he was no longer the center of attention. Patton's second daughter, Ruth, was born in 1915, Then in 1916, Patton and the U.S. Cavalry joined General Pershing on the Mexican border to battle the murderous bandit leader and Mexican folk hero, Pancho Villa. Villa attacked Columbus, New Mexico, with surprising guerrilla attacks. Eighteen Americans died in the fighting. The incident ruled headlines throughout the United States. Patton and the U.S. Cavalry thundered into Mexico. But Patton's moment of glory in Mexico was not on horseback but in the encroaching automobile. The punitive expedition was, was really the making of Patton. He, he launched what he called a great raid to locate one of Pancho Villa's senior lieutenants. They found him at a hacienda. 
there was a great shootout. Villa's uh, henchman was, was killed along with two other Mexicans in a shootout. Patton overnight be became a national figure. He was reported in all of the newspapers. The corpses of the Mexican that he killed were placed on the hood of his car and, and taken back and uh, delivered to Pershing, almost as if one would deliver a, a, a trophy. In the spring of 1917, the U.S. entered into World War I to the unconcealed joy of Patton. Beatrice would not see her France-bound husband again for nearly three years. It was there that a new weapon was being slowly and painfully born. It would one day bring George S. Patton to pinnacles of fame and glory. Patton's great opportunity came at the end of 1917 when Pershing appointed him to, to head the new AEF tank corps, which at the time consisted of Patton and one lieutenant. Between January 1918 and the summer of 1918, Patton single-handedly created the, the AEF tank training center. He created the, the ideas, the tactics, the design, the uniforms, the procedures, virtually everything that was done came from Patton. Over 10,000 men had been trained uh, before, the, before the first battle took place. So it was an amazing accomplishment. Promoted to major and then lieutenant colonel in France, Patton set about drilling his special brand of spit and polish discipline into his blossoming tank corps. His men gained a grudging, growing pride in the corps and its commander. Here's Patton's historian, Martin Blumenson. He was always concerned about what made soldiers fight and what made them do things above and beyond the call of duty. And I think it was that that, that made him such a wonderful trainer of people. There is a, a magic when he's working with troops. Uh, there was, a, there was a, a, a magic bond between Patton and his men. And when we come back, more on the life of George S. Patton, born on this day in history in 1855. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great people at Hillsdale College, where they study all the finer things in life, including, by the way, real American history. And it's Veterans Day today. All two hours will be on subjects in and around our nation's military and what it tells you about life here, a highly flawed individual. Some would think just straight out crazy. But in the end, the unlikeliest people lead our country and are in our lives. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You know, 
God, I actually pity those poor bastards we're going up against. By God, I do. We're not just going to shoot the bastards. We're going to cut out their living guts and use them to grease the treads of our tanks. We're going to murder those lousy Hun bastards by the bushel. And you're listening to George C. Scott playing George S. Patton in one of the great war movies of all time, and we're celebrating Patton's life, born on this day in history in 1885, and it just happens to be Veterans Day. And where we left off was Patton and tanks. Well, the first American tank attack in history was led by George Patton. He left his command post and went directly into the battlefield on foot, kicking and cursing the hesitant. As he progressed, he came across an aristocratic young officer walking coolly forward with his infantry. That officer's name, one Douglas MacArthur. Patton encountered MacArthur. Artillery fire was raining down from the, from the German side. Both were standing facing the enemy fire, uh, neither one willing to acknowledge the fact that, that they might be killed at any moment, neither man flinching. Uh, it was really a case of one-upsmanship. Patton's courage was remarkable, bordering on foolhardy. He once walked boldly over a bridge that was mined heavily by the Germans. Later, he led his men into a contested town, riding on top of a tank that was being splattered with bullets. He didn't know it at the time, but, uh, but eventually this, this helped to, to make his reputation when it was widely reported that he had, that he had ridden the tank under fire. And he, he also had the honor of being perhaps one of the first Americans ever to ride a tank in battle uh, because this was the first day that American tanks had ever been employed in combat. Patton was made a full colonel. He said he would have preferred a medal to the promotion. The end of the First World War coincided with Patton's 33rd birthday. His expected greatness lay still unachieved. He suffered what we call today PTSD, but not surprisingly, Patton's PTSD was not textbook. His was not caused by war, but its lack thereof. During the interwar years, Patton, who from December 1917 to November 1918 went from captain to full colonel, uh, as the head of this, this tremendous organization. He ended the war uh, a war hero, and yet he considered himself a total failure. He came out of the war believing that he had yet to fulfill his destiny, that he had yet uh, to do what he, was, what he believed God had actually put him on this earth to do. Uh, he, there were no other wars uh, you know, in prospect during this dismal period. The army was cut back from, uh, there were over several million you know, during World War I, it was cut back, the professional army, the regular army, was cut back to something under 100,000. And he thought he would never get another chance. It was the worst period of his life. He suffered from uh, uh, depression. I think that, that he may well have suffered from uh, what we now today call post-traumatic stress disorder. He just thought he was a fader. He thought there was nothing left for him. Quite different than the usual PTSD. But the peace Patton dreaded would be less permanent than he feared. Some 350 miles east of where Patton stood in France after the German surrender, an eccentric German corporal named Adolf Hitler, lying in a hospital bed recovering from a British mustard gas attack, brooded vengefully upon his country's defeat. The lack of war had its rewards. It was during this peacetime 
that Patton made a close friend. At the end of World War I, uh, Patton returned to the United States and was assigned to Camp Meade, Maryland, where the, the tank corps was, was then to be located. It was here that, that he met a young tank officer by the name of Dwight Eisenhower, who had spent the war training tank troops uh, outside of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. They spent time together as uh, thinking as tank officers about the future of the tank. They experimented together. They played poker together. Uh, their, their families became close friends. It was a friendship that neither man knew had immense implications for the future, a future that would carry one of them to the presidency of the United States and the other to a soldier's grave on a foreign shore. Then on Christmas Eve 1923, the long-awaited Patton heir arrived in the person of George S. Patton IV. After the 20 bleak interwar years of sailing, polo playing, constructing squash courts and skeet ranges, on the morning of September 1st, 1939, George Patton had more important things to consider finally. With Adolf Hitler's blitzkrieg crashing into Poland, the world moved grimly into the edges of war. But Patton had one huge worry about his future in the growing war machine, his age. When George Marshall became chief of staff, uh, he began cleaning out the army. There were too many old men. He got rid of most of the senior officers over the age of 55. At the time he did this, Patton was already 55 years of age. But Marshall knew Patton. He knew that this was a man that was going to lead at least a corps and later perhaps an army of men. This moment rebirthed Patton's career. Patton's return from the wilderness in 1940, when he was transferred to Fort Benning, Georgia, to become the assistant division commander of the 2nd Armored Division, was the real breakthrough in his career. Somehow to his astonishment, Patton found himself missing his wife, Beatrice, deeply. He seemed to realize what a mess he had made of his marriage and belatedly apologized. He also lamented her absence because he said she kept him from getting into trouble. He also needed his wife because the sad state of the 2nd Armored Division depressed him deeply. The New York Times called them a, quote, partly organized rabble of khaki-wearing civilians, end quote. The patent touch was needed and arrived heavily. He decided that the first thing his outfit needed was a visible commander. His general mode of arrival was with sirens blurring and screaming, uh, arriving with a, a bevy of outriders, the, the military police. Everyone knew who it was. They knew it was Patton. They knew he had arrived. He believed in the, in the, in the presence of a commander as having a tremendous influence. Even the look on his face was calculated to inspire, and he trained himself at it as rigorously as he trained any of his men. He had what he called his war face. He, he practiced it in front of a mirror. Uh, it was the stern visage that, that many of us are familiar with, um, was, was what Patton called his war face. Uh, and he could turn the war face on and off at will. After 31 years in the Army, George S. Patton was now a brigadier general. He was more than ready to make his weight felt at last. In the early 40s, a series of sprawling war maneuvers sending 300,000 men across the American South became the first test of the rebuilding U.S. military. 
These military war games broke into national headlines, and unit commanders' reputations were made or broken as thoroughly as they would be in real war. Patton's flair for the unorthodox served him brilliantly. The 1941 Louisiana and Carolina maneuvers helped make Patton. He commanded 2nd Armored Division. He was making such a splash that he appeared in, in July of 41 uh, on the cover of Life magazine. At one point during the Louisiana maneuvers when, when 2nd Armored was making a wide sweeping movement to, a, to attack the enemy force in the rear, um, his tanks began to run out of gas. and being innovative and, and not letting little things like having not enough fuel stop him, uh, Patton delved into his own pocket to help buy fuel to keep his tanks rolling. And when we come back, the last segment in our hour-long celebration of the life of Patton. And by the way, you've been hearing from one voice more than any other in all of those clips, and it's Carlo Desti. And he wrote the definitive Patton biography called Patton, A Genius for War, back in 1995. It's an old book, but go get it. Go to Amazon and order it. You'll get it, well, real cheap. When we come back, more on the life of Patton, born on this day in history in 1885. This is Our American Stories. our American stories the story of George S. Patton continues as the 14,000 men in second armor became a crack unit Patton became a major general and added inspiration to the training battle is not a terrifying ordeal to be endured it is a magnificent experience wherein all the elements that have made man superior to the beasts are present courage self-sacrifice Loyalty, help to others, devotion to duty. One of the phrases that, that occasionally popped out um, was that, that wars are won by, by blood and by guts. And some wag eventually decided that, that this would make a good label to hang on Patton. And so it became what started out as something fairly innocent. Uh, be, became a label that was hung on him that he, that he really hated. Uh, no one ever called Patton old blood and guts to his face. Then on December 7, 1941, the Japanese surprise attack on Pearl Harbor plunged the United States into a two-front war against terrible enemies. North Africa, where the British were locked in a death struggle with the Nazis' brilliant tank commander, the Desert Fox, General Erwin Rommel, was to be the destination of the first American land combat forces to cross the Atlantic. The media played up a competition between Patton and Rommel, though Patton had not yet even arrived. Time magazine reported Patton wanting to duel the Nazi, tank against tank. Here's what Time wrote. It would be like a combat between knights in the old days. The two armies could watch. If I killed him, I'd be the champ. America would win the war. If he killed me, 
<laughs> well, he wouldn't. But without Patton, the Americans suffered a terrible defeat. Eisenhower now saw his forces lacked the tactical experience needed to rescue the situation. He relieved the failed commander and sent for the man born to fix combat calamities. George S. Patton Jr., at age 57, felt that life had only just begun. And Patton came running because uh, he, he, wanted, he wanted to be in combat, loved to be in combat, uh, took command of the two corps, had 11 days to give them back, give the troops back their self-respect and train them. And he did that in 11 days before leading them in battle, and they took El Gatara, and then they defended against a massive German-Italian counterattack. And they did well. They performed beautifully and turned this disaster into a success. Patton made Omar Bradley his deputy corps commander. Bradley wrote bewilderedly of Patton, quote, His language was studded with profanity and obscenity. I was shocked. Yet when Patton was hosting at the dinner table, his conversation was erudite, and he was well-read, intellectual, and cultured. Patton was two persons, a Jekyll and a Hyde. He was living a role he had set for himself 20 or 30 years before, an amazing figure. Well, now promoted to three-star general, Patton remembered something from his childhood. When I was a little boy at home, I used to wear a wooden sword and say to myself, George S. Patton, Jr., Lieutenant General. The mere thought of defensive hiding sickened Patton, whose doctrine of attack held that soldiers in defensive positions were waiting to die in pre-dug graves. His pet peeves were foxholes and trenches. Here's General Omar Bradley's aide, Colonel Chet Hansen. And I remember Patton once going up to Terry Allen's CP in a little palm grove near El Gatar. He saw all the slit trenches around there, and he said, Terry, you got a slit trench too, as though he disapproved of a general taking cover during a bombing. And Terry said, yeah, right over there, General. And with that, Patton went over and pissed into the trench. Yeah, Patton was uniquely loyal to his boys, most notably his commanders. He was rarely willing to give up on an individual who had failed. He once was given over his objections a division commander by Eisenhower that he didn't want. And when the commander messed up, Eisenhower said, I guess we're going to have to sack him. And Patton said, we'll do no such thing. He's my commander, and by God, I'll make him do it right. And he did. Patton performed with brutal efficiency when he finally got into the heart of the North African battle. German resistance collapsed. The ingenious Nazi commander Rommel later wrote this, quote, In Tunisia, the Americans had to pay a stiff price for their experience, but it brought rich dividends, although we had to wait until the Patton army in France to see the most astonishing achievements in mobile warfare. But Patton's achievements in war required getting the most out of his men. Patton would take chances. He'd push, push, push. He used to call himself the best damned kicker in the United States Army. And he always had the ability to get more out of a division commander than a division commander thought he could give. With so much to be said about the Patton legend, biographer Carlo Desti 
doesn't hesitate for a moment when answering what was Patton's single greatest achievement. The Ardennes Forest is it's one of the densest, uh, most difficult areas to fight over uh, anywhere in Western Europe. The, the forests are deep, uh, the road net is sparse, uh, it's rugged country, and what made it even worse was it was the worst winter in almost 50 years. There were terrible snows. The cold was often six below zero. It was Hitler's last gamble. The German counteroffensive caught the Allies flat-footed. There's no other way to describe it. And, and in the first few hours, no one really knew what to do. On the morning of the 19th of December, 1944, Eisenhower summoned to a little French concern at Verdun all of the senior Allied commanders. And the purpose of this meeting was to figure out what to do. What was the Allied response going to be? Now, out of all the people that came to this meeting, all of these senior generals, Patton was the only one who came with a plan to counter what had happened. He didn't come with one plan. He came with three plans. And Eisenhower said to him, George, what can you do? And Patton said, I can attack in 48 hours with three divisions. And Eisenhower just looked at him and he scoffed. He said, come on, George. He said, get serious. He said, I want to know what you can do. And Patton said, I mean it. And he said, all I have to do is pick up that telephone over there, he said, and give a code word. And he said, they're going to be on the way. Uh, and, and they did. Patton's rescue at the Battle of the Bulge had broken the back of Germany's last major effort. Less than a month before the Nazis would be defeated, Patton inspected the Buchenwald concentration camps the Third Army had liberated, and he became physically ill. He got the burgermeister of the nearest town to call all the citizens together, people who said they'd never heard of a concentration camp before. He marched them through the place. Immediately after, the burgermeister and his wife returned home and committed suicide. Patton's joy of receiving a fourth star, becoming a full general, was dimmed only by General Bradley's getting his four-star promotion first. Then on May, May, and then on May 7, 1945, Germany surrendered. Patton came home to a hero's welcome. Let's listen to Patton himself speaking at a reception for him and the commander of the 8th Air Force, Jimmy Doolittle, at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. Coming over here... That was a very great lesson. The first four hours, we passed over a destroyed land. Utterly destroyed. You who have not seen it do not know what hell looks like from the top. That's what Germany looks like. That's what Austria looks like. That's what any place that the 8th Air Force and the 3rd Army worked on, looks like. You must remember this, that from Brest to various towns in southern Germany and Austria, whose names I can't pronounce, but whose places I have removed, <laughs> the trail of the 3rd Army and the 19th Tactical Air Command and the 8th Air Force is marked by more than 40,000 white crosses. 
40,000 dead Americans. Patton knew of those sacrifices. He quickly returned to Germany to help them rebuild and start a new government. On December 9, a day before he was to fly home, Patton was involved in a car crash while going hunting. He broke his neck and was paralyzed. Twelve days later, the 60-year-old George S. Patton died after a blood clot caused his lungs to fill. One of Patton's friends declared at his ceremony, Georgie Patton didn't die from an automobile accident. He died of a broken heart when they took his army away. General Patton, has be- was- General Patton was buried at an American military cemetery in Luxembourg in an area he called Poor Tank Country. To his silent beloved soldiers at whose side he would forever rest, he undoubtedly proclaimed to them his favorite greeting, I'm damn glad to be here. This is Our American Stories, the life of General George S. Patton, born on this day in history in 1885. I will be proud to lead you wonderful guys into battle anytime, anywhere. That's all.